I'd like to invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Continuing our study through the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 7, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. Romans 7, the first 12 verses, and our heading, our sermon title this morning will be Released from the Law, Frustrated by Sin. Released from the Law, Frustrated by Sin, from Romans 7. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. But I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here ends the reading of God's Word. My most dear friends, as we return to the book of Romans this morning, it should be evident to us from just a casual reading of this first part of Romans 7 that it's about the Christian's relationship with the law of of God. In just the first 14 verses, the word law is mentioned 15 times, and the word commandment is mentioned six times. As you read through Romans chapter 7, it is impossible to get away from the subject of God's law. Now, Paul, in some ways, has already addressed the law of God. We remember that famous verse, if you flip one chapter back to Romans chapter 6, where Paul tells us we are not under the law, but under grace in chapter 6, verse 14. That is, Christians who have been justified, who are identified with Christ, we are freed from the law's condemning power. 
that we've been buried with Christ in baptism. We have been raised to a new life with Him. You are not a slave to the law. You're a slave to Christ. This is God's good gift to us. That we are justified not by law keeping. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Someone give me an amen. This is God's good gift. But sometimes after a sermon, somebody will come up to you and ask you a question about your message. And you can imagine Romans 7 being about a question after Paul's sermon thus far in the book of Romans. Pastor Paul, if this is God's good gift, what about the law? What about the law? The Jews have always taught, always believed, and still do regard the law as God's good gift. Turn with me this morning to Psalm 19, which we just sang, but it makes it very clear that the law was always seen as God's gift to the world. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law is sure, making wise the simple. The law is right, rejoicing the heart. The law is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then in verse 10, it says, The law is to be more desired than gold. Pastor Paul, what about Psalm 19? What about Psalm 119? What about God's gift of the law? And the Christian's relationship to the law is even still this day, 2,000 years later, one of the more controversial subjects in the church. We all know people who think that the law has no bearing on their life. And they can live how they want. Remember once as a young boy, a pastor saying to me, the Ten Commandments do not apply to New Testament Christians. But then conversely, we all know people who act as Pharisees, as if the law is everything. We too need to be asking the question of Romans 7, what about the law? Here at Trinity United Reformed Church, we read the law this morning. We read the law every Sunday morning. I'm willing to bet in your parenting, you use the Ten Commandments. I'm willing to bet in your life, your personal life, you apply the Ten Commandments to yourself. And what Paul wants to teach us here in Romans 7 is that whenever we consider the law of God, there are two things we need to focus on. You need to get this today to understand the law as a Christian. There are two things we must focus on. We must focus on what the law can do, and we must focus on what the law cannot do. What can, what can the law do? Look at Romans 7. The Apostle Paul says the law can bind you. Verse 1, it is binding on a person as long as he lives. 
the law can reveal sin. Verse 7, that's how Paul knew his sin. It can arouse sin. Verse 5, it aroused Paul's sinful passions. It can label sin. Verse 13, but there isn't a single mention in the whole book of Romans or even in the whole Bible that the law can save. The law can reveal your sin. It can label your sin. It can even arouse your sin. What it cannot do is save you. This led Matthew Henry, one of those great Puritan authors, to write, the two most important words in the Bible are law and gospel. Because the whole point of the law we're going to learn this morning for a Christian is that it would lead you to Jesus. The whole function of the law is that it would lead you to Jesus. Our theme this morning is that Christians have been released from the law and given to Christ so that they might serve Him. I want to show you two points this morning. Freedom from the law and also the goodness of the law. Freedom and the goodness of the law. Of the law. The first thing we see in verse 1 is that the apostle begins with what we call an axiom, a general truth that all people know. He says, Do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? It's a rhetorical question because it's something we all know to be true. That the moment someone was born in the Roman Empire, they had to keep that law of the Roman Empire until they died. It's the same thing in the United States. It's the same thing in the whole world. That as soon as you're born, the law is binding upon you until you die. Paul says it's the same thing with God's law. The word binding in Greek actually means Lord. It means to rule, to have dominion. God's law and the law of the country has authority over every aspect of your and my life until we die. And this is a good thing. The Ten Commandments are right. And we're told back in Romans 2, if you remember, that the Ten Commandments are written on the hearts of all people. What this means is that the morality that our world has, the goodness we see in our world, the ethics we see that people have, everyone knows you shall not kill. Everyone knows you shall not steal. All come from this. The law is one of God's good gifts. Verse 12, it is holy, righteous, and good. Well, if it's holy, righteous, and good, why do we need to be freed from it? Well, this is the nub, my friends. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But we are not holy, righteous, and good. And isn't this always what sin does? Sin takes something good and twists it. Sin takes something righteous and makes it a burden. Sin takes something holy and destroys it. 
And this is exactly what happened with the law. It took what was holy and righteous and good, and it became an overwhelming burden that we could no longer bear. The Jews even recognized this, and they began to refer to the law of God as a yoke. Boys and girls, a yoke is when a wooden harness of some sort is put across an animal's shoulders, normally two oxen in the olden days, and they would plow a field with this yoke across their shoulders, and it indicated hard labor. The Jews are saying when they call the law a yoke, it's a hard labor. It's a daily straining with all your might against an unbearable burden. We see this in Acts 15. If you have a Bible, look at Acts 15, verse 10. When all the churches gathered together and they were asking the question, do the Gentiles need to submit to the Old Testament laws? The law of God. The law of circumcision. Peter makes this admission in Acts 15, verse 10. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing, listen to this, a yoke on the neck of, our, of the disciples, the Gentiles, that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Peter says that as sinful people, we cannot fulfill the law's demands. And so as a Jew under the Old Testament, or as a Gentile with the Ten Commandments written on your heart, we were under an unbearable burden. That's the problem. It cannot save. It cannot sanctify. But we are all bound to it. That's why you need freedom. Because you are bound to something that cannot save you. And so Paul, in verses 2 and 3, gives us an illustration to try to help us understand But the problem in verses 2 and 3 is that a lot of people struggle to understand what Paul is saying. In Romans, Paul is talking about the believer's relationship to the Gospel. In Romans 5, he outlines what justification is. In Romans 6, he answers the objections that the Gentiles and the Jews might have had to justification. And then we get to Romans chapter 7. He seems to be talking about the law. And then he has this discourse on marriage. Adultery and remarriage. And we think, Paul, what does this have to do with the law? But if you've been married, I want you to think back to your wedding day this morning. And what did you say when you made that covenant? You said, till death do we part, right? What you said was that the only thing that will sever your relationship with this other person is if one of you dies. Now I'm well aware that Paul, or excuse me, of Christ's words regarding adultery in Matthew 5 as breaking the covenant, as well as Paul's words regarding abandonment in 1 Corinthians as also being a grounds for the severing of that covenantal relationship. But adultery and abandonment should be seen as exceptions, not the rule. 
the rule of Scripture is that when we say, till death do us part, we have made a covenant until death. That's what verses 2 and 3 is saying. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, till death do us part, she is released from the law of marriage. But if she leaves her husband and then she goes and marries another person, Paul says she's an adulteress. She lives with another man while her husband is alive without sufficient grounds. But if her husband dies, then she's free to the law. Here's the principle. When we die, our spouses are free to remarry. Why is Paul saying this? Well, you've got to keep reading. Look at verse 4. Likewise. He says, our relationship to the law is till death do we part. That the Jews' relationship to the Ten Commandments and all the laws of Moses is till death do we part. That the Gentiles having the law written on their heart, Romans 2, is till death do we part. And so Paul's advice to being united in covenant with something that, is going, that will not save you. His advice to those who are in covenant with the law, all of us, that only reveals, provokes, and arouses sin, get this, as he says, one of you needs to die. How would you feel if you came into marriage counseling with me and you said, Pastor, we're really struggling in our marriage. And my advice was to you was one of you needs to die. That's what Paul's saying. One of you needs to die so that you can be free to enter a new relationship. But who dies in verse 4? Does the law die? Does the law written on our hearts die? The law of nature? Look what Paul says. You have died. Paul's illustration in verses 2 and 3 is that the husband's death frees the wife. But in reality, it is we who need to die to be free from the law. Now Paul here uses what we call the aorist tense. It's the past tense. So it's not that you should die or that you must die. Paul is saying you have died. That in Jesus Christ, you have died. In His death, in His resurrection, you have been united to Him and you have died. Just like Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. So that I no longer live, but He lives in me. Paul is saying it's the work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that liberates us from the law. That Jesus did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He kept the law perfectly. He bore the punishment of our disobedience in in His body so that we were not liable. 
So that we could be released from the law just like someone might be released from a destructive marriage. And here is the best part. The believer who has died to the law gets a new and better husband. Verse 4 makes something, says something so beautiful. You also have died when Jesus died on the cross to the law through the body of Christ. Listen to this. So that you may belong to another. The picture here is that the death of Christ frees you from an abusive husband to become the beloved bride of a new husband. I know someone, and I may not get through this without tears, so you have to forgive me, whose husband was a tyrant, not a lover. And I know it goes both ways that there are husbands whose wives are taskmasters and not helpers, but this woman was subject to both abuse and adultery. And then later in life, after her first husband died, she remarried a loving and gentle, godly man. And her whole life changed. She went from misery to joy. From frustration at home to service. From walking on eggshells and fear to rushing to get home. Paul says, this is your reality. When you're released from the law by faith and given to a new and better husband, you've been given to someone who loves you. Somebody who cares for you. You become the spouse of a loving bridegroom. Somebody who is the Him I greet thee, whom I sure redeemer art, says, who has true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou, and no bitterness. O grant us grace that we may find in thee, that we may dwell in perfect unity. Paul says, this is what we're given in Jesus. And in a good marriage, your whole life becomes affected. You love your spouse and you gladly attend to the needs they have. This is why Paul says, let us bear fruit. Because we love our new bridegroom. To be released from the law is released from the burden, the condemning power, and you are given to a loving relationship in Christ. What pleases God, congregation, is obedience from a heart of love. Bearing fruit in love. Paul says the old way of trying to please God only aroused his sinful passions. We'll talk about this in just a few more moments. But just like parents with a toddler who say, don't do that. And as soon as you you turn your back, what do they do? That. Paul says, that's what the law did to me. 
Paul says the law aroused his flesh, or roused his sinful passions. It showed him his sin. It revealed how far he had fallen short. But it was in the death of Christ he was given life. He was given Jesus. We want to serve this new bridegroom. And we serve him by faith and love. Do you see the difference here? Between the law and Christ. Why do you live for Christ? Why do you serve Him? Why do you worship Him? Why do you want to spend time with Him? Why do you deny sin? Why do you follow Him? Not because I have to. Or because the law will beat me up if I don't. But I want to love and serve the Savior who freed me from the law and its condemnation. Well, isn't there a word of application here, my friends? There's great hope for those here in this passage who might desire a spouse. Think of widows and widowers, maybe singles who desire somebody in their lives who will love them completely. Here Paul says, you have been given someone who loves you completely. Who won't beat you up for your faults. Who won't yell at you when you don't fig, uh, finish the dishes or sweep the floor. You have a bridegroom who loves you even in your imperfections. There is great peace in Him. No harshness, no bitterness. But perfect gentleness. Even those of us who are married need to look to Christ. To the fulfillment of our love. And so we see that the law needs to, we need to be free from it. It's something that we're all bound to. It's something that we can never save us. But it is still good. The law is good. See, one of the problems of Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone was that many of the Jews would have feared that this would make the law seem worthless. Or worse yet, it could make it even seem harmful. And unfortunately in our day, I think this fear has come true. I think many people read the book of Romans and they say, great! I don't need to worry about the Ten Commandments. And they practically ignore the five books of Moses or even the whole Old Testament. We're not under the law, we're under grace. What's the point of using the law then? That's the background of verse 7. What shall we say that the law is sin? And think about it. Every time Paul has spoken about the law in the book of Romans to this point, he has always spoken about it in a negative way. It provokes sin. It reveals sin. It arouses sin. It's negative. It seems. So is the law sin? Well, Paul changes here in these last few verses I want to show you this morning. He begins to speak positively about the law. He tells us that the law is good because it does all those things. It is good because it reveals our sin. It's good because it provokes our sin. It's good, most importantly, because it shows us how desperately we need a Savior. The law is good. First, I just want to show you three things because it reveals our sins. Verse 7, if it not had been for the law, Paul says, 
I would not have known sin. Paul is an excellent student of human behavior. He notices that if human beings are left to themselves, we do not think of ourselves as sinners. And he's right. Naturally, we know that we do wrong. We can be convicted about something. But do we think about ourselves as sinners? Not a chance. Remember Genesis chapter 6, before the flood uh, that God sent upon the earth, we read that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and how every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. That's God's opinion of men. But is that man's opinion of men? Do men think that their hearts are only evil all the time? I don't think so. What Paul is saying is quite profound here. He says, apart from the Holy Spirit, you don't even know who you are. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't know who you are. And Paul uses himself as an example. If it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. He didn't know himself. He didn't know his own faults. He didn't know his own sin. And this is kind of crazy when you think about it. Because in Philippians 3, Paul tells us that he was breathing out threats upon the church, even killing Christians, and he didn't know that he was sinning. That even in his terrorism, because that's what Paul was, he was a terrorist, he thought, as he says in Philippians 3, I was blameless before God. Did Paul think of himself as a sinner? The answer is no. He didn't. But when the commandment came to him, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, he saw himself for who he was. Somebody who struggled with sin. This is the first blessing of the law. When we read the 10 commandments, when your parents apply it to your life, young people, when you apply it to yourself, it reveals your own heart. It's a mirror. It shows you who you really are. That's the first blessing. The second good thing the law does is it provokes sin. And you say, slow down, pastor. How is provoking sin a good thing? Well, it's only good in the sense that it shows us how strong sin is. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The idea here, as I mentioned with the little kids, is that when we put up a boundary, we are tempted to rebel against it. And it shows us something of ourselves. A good illustration of this, a biblical illustration, is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We're told that there's nothing about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that would draw them to it. Its fruit wasn't more beautiful Only after the serpent uh, tempted Eve did she see that it was pleasing to the eye. Presumably it wasn't better tasting 
What drew them to that one tree? Because God said, you shall not eat of the tree. Sin seized the opportunity and produced in Adam and Eve the desire. There's also a historical example of the St. Augustine. James Montgomery Boyce points out where when he was a young boy there was many pears on a tree. And the, and the farmer told him not to eat of the pears. And him and his friends grow up and they or go out excuse me, in the middle of the night and they steal the pears. And he says, we didn't even eat them. We just threw them in the, ri- the, the river. Because it was the desire to steal that so attracted him. See, when the law provokes sin, there's something deeper. It doesn't just reveal that we are sinners, but Paul shows us the root of our sin. Our hearts. Our wicked hearts. Oftentimes we try to justify our sins. We stole because we had need. We swore because we are angry. We are drunk because we hurt. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. But Paul teaches that when we have an honest look at our own sinful actions, we do not disobey because of necessity. We disobey because of desire. The law doesn't just reveal sin, but it shows us how strong it is and how deeply rooted in our own hearts it often is. That's a blessing to know that. But the third and the most important blessing is this. The law brings us to the end. It brings you to the end of yourself. That's what Paul's saying in verse 9. It brought him to death. I once was alive apart from the law, Paul says, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death. It brings him to the end of himself. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived it, and through it, it killed me. What does Paul mean here? And he's saying, when I thought I was blameless, when I thought I was faultless before God, he thought if anyone could stand before God, it was him. If anyone, or if God told him to do something, he would do it. But when the law came to him, it convicted him. And we don't know when this took place. Maybe it was Ananias who read him the law. Maybe it was during his period of blindness. We don't know. But as the law was read to Paul, it cut him to the heart. Other people might think Paul was perfect. But God saw his heart. He saw Paul's covetousness. He saw Paul's pride. He saw Paul's vanity and self-righteousness. And Paul says, when God revealed that to me, I died. It showed him his heart. It showed him, as he says, that my righteousness was rags. He saw that he was hopeless and he was sinful. And of all the things the law does, this is the best. Because as long as Paul thought he was righteous, he would have went to hell. If Paul continued his life 
thinking, his heart was blameless before God, he would not have been able to stand before him. Psalm 24. Who can be in the presence of God? Only those with clean hands, lips unstained with sins, and a pure heart. And it was only when he realized that he was lost. Only when he realized how badly he needed another one's righteousness that he fell on his knees like the publican in the Gospel of Luke and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the best thing the law does. It brings us to our knees. I've sinned, Lord. All ten I've broken. Forgive me, a sinner. Is the law sin? Certainly not, Paul says. It's holy and righteous and good. It's holy because it's the will of the holy God. It's righteous because it demands justice. But it's good because God is merciful and has provided a way of salvation for lawbreakers. Forgiveness for people who have failed. That's the goodness of the law. Even though it reveals my sin and provokes the wickedness of my heart, it points the, uh, my eyes to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The law points us to Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 2, it is a tutor to lead us to Jesus. How can Christians sing as we just did in Psalm 19? I love Your law, O God. How can we say it is perfect and sure and righteous and desirable? Not because we can obey it. Not because it saves but because it points us to Jesus who saves law breakers. By faith we can say, I love Your law. Because we have Jesus. Instead of receiving condemnation, Jesus forgives when we look to Him and ask for forgiveness for sinners such as us. Congregation, this morning we read the law. Are you a sinner? Fall on your knees and look to Christ for forgiveness. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we give you thanks for this morning and how you love us so to not only give us your law, but to give us the Lord Jesus who is the Savior for lawbreakers. We love your law because you have given us a better bridegroom who doesn't beat us up or condemn us in our failures, but who loves us to the point of shedding His own blood for sinners like us. Father, we pray if there be any among us who are still trying to earn their righteousness before God, trying to stand before You on the basis of their own good works, soften their hearts and lead them to the Savior, we pray, who is full of gentleness and no bitterness, and forgiveness for all of our sins. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.